From Jonah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. This is God's word for us today. We'll, we'll dive into that in just a moment. I will, I said it first hour, I'll say it again. If I hear you say, let's go, or come on, Lamar, or something like that, uh, I'll just interpret it as an amen. I won't be mad at you. All right, so like, feel, feel free to check your score if you need to. But I really do think, though, that there's something valuable and important in, uh, in what we're doing together in this room. Not, and we do every week. I think that's true, of course. But I just think there's something really powerful about this short four-chapter book known as Jonah and its power for us as modern people, okay? Um, do you know what it's like to know the right thing to do but have no desire to do it. <laughs> yes, I mean, right? Like, have you ever just quit or run away rather than facing that particular thing? Have you ever felt like the thing that God was asking you to do is not the right thing? Because it's not how you would do it if you were God. <laughs> and have you ever been so frustrated to see people who have no business at all receiving God's mercy, receiving God's mercy. To quote the movie for whom there is a Jonah themed, well then have we got a show for you, right? Like, 
The book of Jonah is, is, is a powerful book that I think, uh, even if you have just a little bit of familiarity with, can suffer from what I'll call the lullaby effect. Like you think you know the story, and so you don't really reflect upon the story, right? It just, it's just soothing. It's a calming story. I know how it ends, and, and you may not, actually. It's a, it, it's, it's a story that's about more than a fish or a whale or a dinosaur or whatever you think may be personified in the book of Jonah. It's a story actually about more than a guy named Jonah who is like the world's worst prophet. <laughs> uh, it's a story about the love and the compassion and the mercy of God being extended in places where nobody is deserving of such kind of mercy or grace or compassion. Um, so we're going to look through this line by line over the course of the next few weeks, hopefully doing so thoughtfully and bringing and illuminating some, some reflections about God and ourselves and other people uh, in our time together. So before we dive into the text, I think it's important for us to know what we're reading. Okay? Just like uh, when, you, when you open a book of the Bible, when we say the Bible is a book, what we mean when we say that is the Bible is actually a collection of books, uh, 66 in the Protestant tradition, and they all have different themes, and they all have different uh, audiences, and they all have different literary styles, right? So if you open up your calculus book, if you're a student, and you think, oh, what a great work of teen fiction, like, that wouldn't really be a fitting use of the calculus book, right? Because the calculus book is intended to teach you calculus, in the same manner, uh, literary styles differ throughout the scriptures. There are books of history, there are narratives, there are personal letters, there is literature that's called apocalyptic literature, which is sort of meant to be symbolic and vague. There's books of poetry. So it's important for us to know, if we're really going to dive into Jonah, at least from a, a narrower picture of things, what is it we're actually reading when we read the book of Jonah? Okay? And I'll narrow it to two possibilities for you that may be helpful for you who uh, maybe are not acquainted with the book or may find yourself kind of stuck in the details of Jonah's story. Okay? One of two options that I would extend to you. One is that we are talking about Jonah um, as a real guy having experienced real events that happened and he's essentially the, 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 the you know, the, he's lived to tell the story. Okay? And, and here's why that could be credible, right? Like, we can, first of all, Jonah was a real person. We, we have that from books of history in the scripture. Second Kings chapter 14 tells us that Jonah was a prophet under a guy named Jeroboam. Jeroboam, not a great king of Israel, not a good person in general, not a great leader, um, and Jonah worked for that guy. And, uh, and, and he did so uh, at a time when the Assyrians, who were the superpower of the time, more on them in a minute, had already kind of ransacked a lot of the northern kingdom of Israel's neighbors, for which Jeroboam is the king. And so it was very easy for Jonah to prophesy that under Jeroboam's leadership, the borders of the region of the northern kingdoms would extend to boundaries not known since the days of David and Solomon, great kings of Israel. And so Jeroboam sort of conquers lands and recaptures areas that honestly had already been kind of pillaged and picked over by the Assyrians in an act of, in an act of kind of national political, you know, look at us and look at how great we are. Okay? Jeroboam 
had Jonah as the guy saying, yeah, God's going to do that through you. By the way, Amos will later refute Jonah's prophecies, all right, to Jeroboam. So it's just a way to say we are talking about a person who existed in history. We are talking about a person who lived and actually did the job that he is ascribed to in this book. And so it's very easy for us, some of us then, to go, okay, yeah, this is a book about a guy that happened in a very specific time in Jonah's life. Okay? There's another option that scholars debate, which is that this is a story about a real guy who did a real thing, but it's, but it's sort of dressed up in the form of an allegorical parable. And what they would point to is the use of adjectives in the genres. Uh, you know, if you read this book, you're going to hear the word great a whole lot. So th think of it as kind of like a comic bookie or marvelizing a real story. Jesus does this in Luke chapter 16, where he uh, references a guy that the audience would have known in the story of Rich Man and Lazarus. It's a fictional account, probably used then but as points of reference for, like, here's a guy we know, and... You know, let's reference him and, and create a story about him. Which is fitting because what we're going to see in history is that Jonah's not known as being a really great prophet. Right? So, what I'm not going to solve for you in the next four weeks is are we talking about a metaphorical whale or a literal whale? Are we talking about a fish or a plesiosaur? What are we talking about here? Like, that's... The ancients aren't really interested in answering that question. And I think that... That conversation actually robs us of the greater conversation and the invitation that is the book of Jonah. So I'm not trying to be evasive with you, um, but more that I'm trying to say, like, let's understand that we're either reading a literal story or an allegorical parable, and they both, in this case, will point us to the, the, the power and love of God, the compassion of God playing out in the lives of others, and a front row seat confrontation with ourselves. If we allow it. Okay? So Jonah chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because the wickedness that has come up before me. Now this is where it would be handy to be a person reading this text in the native language or hearing it in the first time. In, in, in its native tongue. Because we would hear that verse 1 and we would chuckle. Because son of Amittai means son of faithfulness. Well, that's funny, because Jonah's not, right? Like, it's, it's the equivalent of, like, if you've ever met a big, burly, striking person who probably looks like they play linebacker for the Ravens, and they're like, my friends call me tiny. Like, it, it's invoking a, oh, that's comical, because you're not. Ha, see? Jonah's name is, like, the opposite of what Jonah actually is in a time in history where names mean something. Okay? Jonah is called... To go to the city of Nineveh. Let's talk about Nineveh for a minute. Nineveh is the most populated and, pop, and, and, and powerful city in the Assyrian Empire, which would be the known superpower of the time. Okay? The Assyrian Empire would be an existential threat to the existence of both the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel. It would be an existential threat to everyone around them. They are not known for their diplomacy. They are known for scorched earth policies, um, there is artifacts in their cities and in their ancient sites celebrating and elevating the acts of violence inflicted upon their neighbors. Uh, the one that you see here is, um, <laughs> looking around, reading the room, okay, there's not children, like skinning their enemies. <laughs> 
The, the one after it that may appear is, a Bab- is from the Babylonian times of like crushing, the, making the Babylonians crush the skulls of their peers. Like they are a known violent people. And so this is not like, this is not just like, it's a very layered, nuanced, difficult task. Can we agree that like there probably are some big feelings racially um, towards the Ninevites and towards the Assyrian kingdom, but which, by the way, would be modern-day Iraq, more specifically the city of Mosul, and you could find artifacts of the ancient city of Nineveh that, that Jonah is being called to, to go to, if, if you like, okay? Uh, see Google, okay? And uh, so that's where Jonah is being called to. You can see why it's a difficult, nuanced task. And, 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 and even if nothing personal has ever happened in Jonah's family, you can see why, like, this feels really heavy. This feels really hard. Like, to go to the least compassionate, the, you know, the, the most powerful empire and, like, preach against them, why that might feel like a really tall order. Okay? So think about, in modern times, a Ukrainian pastor being asked to sit before the Kremlin and, like, call Putin to repentance, if you, if you like. Think about uh, an Israeli pastor sitting before the decision-makers of Hamas and saying, hey, I have a word for you. Think about a Palestinian not affiliated with Hamas sitting before the Israeli government and saying, I have a word for you. And you may get a little bit of a sense of what it means to feel called as Jonah called, is, is called. Okay? That's, that's an important context, I think, for our purposes if we went, want to understand this story well. So what does Jonah do here? He's called to go to preach against Nineveh, and here we go. What does Jonah do? Verse 3. So Jonah ran the, away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee the Lord. So Jonah does not just have a cup of coffee and stay home or switch churches or, you know, like, or just, like, give God the finger in some sort of existential wrestling match. Jonah does uh, the complete opposite thing. Uh, if, if, if you'll indulge my hands, my hands as a map here for a minute, if, if where Jonah lives and does his work is kind of where my, my center right hand is, and Nineveh is over here toward the piano, um, Tarshish is about 2,400 miles the opposite direction to that piano. It's, it's thought of as modern-day Spain. And and it's known, if you look at Second Chronicles chapter 9, as a place in the time of Solomon where there's great gold and treasures being, being found and brought into, into the Middle East, right? To, into where uh, the, the immediate context of Jonah would be. And so, Jonah books passage on a ship, not towards Nineveh, which is good because there's not, like, it's not, it's not a waterway, um, but, but in the opposite direction and sails off, okay? Again, intending to sort of point out to us, if we know the geography and we know the history of the time, like, he is going the complete opposite direction of where he was called. He's going to a place that Eugene Peterson says he can have, you, he have good religious duties, but not have to ask God to be a part of them. He can just enjoy, like, the good, I work in the nonprofit sector, you know, like that kind of thing. I don't really, but not really have to be accountable to God and just kind of live a nice life for himself, have a good career. So off he goes. He's sailing Christopher Cross style. Um, and then verse 4, the Lord sent 
a great wind on the sea, such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. Okay, important for us to realize here that, that Jonah isn't just picking, handpicking some of his colleagues to, like he is with strangers, he's paid for passage, these are professionals, and they are encountering something on the seas that even freaks them out. It's that kind of storm, it's that kind of thing. And so um, what is Jonah doing during that time? But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. Essentially saying, not my problem. <laughs> the, verse 6, the captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Remember the ancient world. Remember third or fourth grade where you were studying the Greeks and the Romans and all the gods and goddesses and, and how the way suffering was sort of thought about at that time, right? The suffering means that we've like made the gods angry in some kind of form. So we've got to figure out which one did we tick off and what do we need to do to make it right? So, so there's a practical thing. We're stuck in a storm. We need a professional sailor to, to navigate. Let's throw some stuff over the deck. Let's figure out how to, how to stay on course but then there's also the existential thing that's happening. Like, this is a storm beyond our compare. We got to do, we got to make ourselves right with all of the gods. And so this is a polytheistic, pluralistic group of people. This is not a group of Jewish sailors. And so they're all in like panic mode. Everybody call out to everybody's God, which is why the captain goes to the deck and is like, dude, wake up. Like, we got business to tend to here. You're, you know, you can be part of that. Verse 7, the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. And so they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. That's an ancient form of divination. Um, and, and again, it's very incumbent of that time to go, and it's still true for us too, right? We're trying to make sense of suffering. There's suffering happening. Who's at fault? Because if we know who's at fault, we can take care of the issue. We can stamp it out. So they asked him, tell us. Who is responsible for making all this kind of trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? So these are awkward questions to answer if he wants to be honest fully about his story. He's given them some information. Listen to what he says. He says, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done they knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. So they knew that he is a guy that had a story, you know, they, the guy's paying for passage on a ship the complete opposite direction of his homeland. Like, okay, he's probably got some story to tell, not our business, we've got his fare. But now they get a little bit more of the context, right? That, that, that there's something happening here with Jonah, and so what do they do about it? Verse 11, the sea was getting rougher and rougher. They asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? And he said, pick me up and throw me into the sea and it will become calm. I know this is my fault. The great storm has come upon you. Okay, so time out here. We're tempted in this moment to have some sympathy for Jonah and go, oh, what a good guy. Like, oh, what a hero. You, you know, you're the guy that stays behind while everybody else gets to safety. The scholars would disagree with you. The scholars would go, I mean, this guy is just so like, I'd rather be dead than do what I'm being asked to do. And if I'm thrown into the sea, then it's just over. 
right? So he's kind of a guy sort of making himself as a sympathetic character, making himself as a victim when he's actually the one bringing harm to the people around him, right? That, that may be something in your life that you have felt acutely. Why is this person, why is this person who is, is like, cannot see that the harm that they're bringing? So he kind of grandstands a little bit and says, well, throw me away into the sea. And, uh, and they're not comfortable with that. They're not comfortable with that at all. The men did their best to row back to land, but they could not. The seeger even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now, again, like... This is an important, like, part of the literary component of the story. Where does the first prayer in the book of Jonah show up? From the pagan polytheistic sailors who have no sense of who it is they're praying to. Like, the guy who has received a word from them. I mean, we're not told how, what Jonah prays and how Jonah prays. We're not told what Jonah maybe says on the deck. The first prayer we have recorded here is from the sailors who are not supposed to be the ones praying to Yahweh. And what's more, who do we have humanizing someone in this story? The ones that, that call Jonah an innocent man based on their understanding of of, of, of what's happening in this moment, right? The, the story as it's supposed to go is that Jonah receives a message about the Ninevites and goes to that land and sees the humanity of the Ninevites and invites them to repentance. But instead, the pagan sailors are going, we see you. We don't want to be part of this, but he's telling us to be part of this. So they throw him overboard. And that's where the storm grows calm. And the men, having experienced the power of Yahweh, like are moved like they they there's something transformational about how things have gone in their particular story based on what they've experienced here again this is going to be like a recurring theme the next four weeks the places where the story is supposed to say here are the good guys and here are the villains everybody who's supposed to be a villain <laughs> over the next four weeks ends up being a place where god's compassion and mercy and power break through and the person who's supposed to be the prophet, stand for God, speak for God, is getting a constant glimpse into his own self-righteousness and his own hard-heartedness and the ways in which maybe the difficult parts of his story have become weaponized and he's, he's blocking the ability to, to really receive fully and understand God's mercy and grace and power. So what is this chapter inviting us to understand about God? What is it inviting us to understand about ourselves or about other people? Let's, uh, let's, let's talk about this really quickly. Number, number one, I think it's inviting us to, to the understanding that running from God is a very real and universal struggle. Um, sometimes when people want to be, uh, keep the scriptures at an arm's length, like, I don't really want to interact with this. I'm not very interested in it. One of the things they'll point to is how just absolutely terrible some of the people in the Bible behave. Right? 
even people that are often lauded in children's classrooms for being great people of faith. And that, the scriptures are not interested in pretending that's not a thing. The scriptures are not interested in saying, like, no, 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 everybody's really great. Just like we sometimes try to, like, you know, downplay the more difficult parts of our story. The, the scriptures are very interested in displaying to you not just the, the, the heroic acts or the great acts of faith, but the moments in the scriptures where people who knew better didn't do better. And if, and if that's you, welcome to, welcome to the story, <laughs> Right? The, the, the scriptures here are not intended to be like, Jonah is such an idiot. How could he be so thick? How could he be so dense? But for you to see in your own life, where are you being clearly called to a difficult thing and then you go the complete opposite direction? Or you just stand pat and you do nothing at all because, because honestly, you just trust your own version of the events. And, and, and like... I say that to say you're going to, if you haven't already or you're not there now, have moments in your journey of faith where that's how it's going to be or that's how it's going to feel. God, I sense you're calling me this direction. I sense this is your picture of success. I sense this is where your compassion and mercy want to go. And I just don't want to go there. And I just don't want to do it. And if, and if you... If you have ever felt those things in your heart, then the book of Jonah is a great place for you to sit with the power and compassion of God and to sit with the hard parts of your story and to sit with how maybe the wounds inflicted upon us or around us have been, have been weaponized to blind us from where and how God is actually working, right? You've got some version of Tarshish, some 2,400 miles away, beautiful picture of how the world is supposed to go. And you, you're trying to go over there. But like the mercy and love of God is continually tapping you on the shoulder. If you've ever felt that conflict, then, then you know very well the place of being uh, in Jonah's seat, right? The... the the, it's still, on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, the, the book of Jonah is read aloud. Um, as a way to say, if you will repent, in this day of repentance, you can encounter the power and character of God in your story. Like, this is a place where we don't, we don't stand against Jonah and go, well, how could you, Jonah? But we try to see ourselves in Jonah's responses and Jonah's reactions. And, and to do so is not a reflection of a lack of spirituality on our part, but maybe the invitation that God is extending all along, right? To be soft-hearted and to see where God is working and moving in our life. Secondarily, it's to say that our decisions have impact on others. Our decisions do have an impact on others. We, we live in a very, you know, if you want a Diet Coke, drink a Diet Coke, do you? Right? Like... Go for it. Do what you want, right? No, nobody can tell you differently. And, and there's some merit, perhaps, to living that way in terms, of, in terms of a great many things. But there are also some great limitations. And one of the great limitations is the belief that our actions have no effect on other people. <laughs> right? It'd be very easy for you if you go to another culture and eat the food and drink the water for, you know, seven to ten days and watch the people around you, get a sense of some things culturally that just like don't make a lot of sense to you but people are just doing and if you were to ask them about it over a cup of tea or a cup of coffee 
even some of those people might struggle to make sense of those things. If, 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 if a person at the time of this writing were to drop into 2023, they may say similarly about the way we approach our decision-making, right? In the scriptures, sin is not just an individual thing, particularly in the Old Testament. It's a communal thing, right? That what happens when we make our decisions is that it does bear an impact on other people. You know this to be true. You feel this to be true. Some of the heaviness you feel today, the grief or the anger or the sadness on some part, may come from a decision somebody else has made. What's difficult for us is to say in that moment of crisis, in that spiritual crisis that we may be having, to, to pay attention to the decisions that we are making and the impact that those people are having on us is, is part of the story. Right? Jonah does, while he's like fast asleep under the deck, you're just doing his thing, is creating a lot of spin and nonsense for other people. And, and for them, it ends in a good place, right? But it doesn't remove itself from like how hard-hearted in the early chapters of this book is Jonah to be sleeping below deck while everyone else is like, throw over the stuff and pray to your gods. But that's another place that's easy for us to get to if we're not paying attention, right? So we pay attention to that part of our story. We, we pay attention to the reality that, that in our own repentance, there's invitation to, to pay attention to how our decisions impact other people. And then lastly, that God is working even when we don't want to or just don't. Like, the, the good news of Jonah chapter 1 is that Jonah does the opposite or just enough basically for four chapters. And it does not stop God from working and moving and displaying God's power and love and compassion to people, right? So there are times when Jonah just goes the complete opposite direction to try and subvert God and it doesn't stop God. And then there are other times where Jonah just pouts. And it doesn't stop God. And there are times where Jonah cries out. And it doesn't stop God. That God is working and moving in our stories. And sometimes in spite of us. And inviting the world around us to, uh, to mercy and compassion. So I tell you this because I say, I, and I think about this because I think in this room often, there are people who tend to put a great deal of pressure and burden on themselves. Right? Carrying the weight of the world on the shoulders. It's all on us. It's all on us to hold things together. You know, that's, that's sometimes said to you or implied to you in your place of business. It's sometimes like projected upon you by even well-meaning people. And so... Many people in this room are not the people who do the baseline enough just to not get, you know, just to get the passing grade. You know, what, what's the least amount I have to do to get the passing grade? We're, we're a lot of overachievers in this foundry bunch. And so what it means is when we mess up, when we fail, when we run the opposite direction, we can experience a great deal of existential shame. And we can have a hard time releasing ourselves even though we may forgive other people. And I think one of the invitations of the book of Jonah 
is that a guy who does little to nothing, and is perhaps the worst of the prophets, <laughs> you know, if we're looking at, like, his actions alone, does not stop or subvert the work of God. Does it create some bumps in the road? Absolutely it does, which is why I offered our second point. But it doesn't stop the work and movement of God. And so to say, right, the chapter one ends with Jonah swirling around in a sea. Guy first hour was like, it ends with him being fish food. Ha ha. You know, like, right? Like it kind of, and it kind of does. It, it ends with Jonah experiencing a sea of what self-righteousness and indignance and a lack of repentance and perhaps a little bit of shame deliver. But the invitation of the book of Jonah and ultimately the scriptures as a whole is to experience and be washed by the grace and mercy and power and forgiveness of Jesus for your story and the stories of those around us. And that begins by really receiving with fresh heart and fresh head and fresh hands what, what it means to be loved even as you're swirling around in that sea. We'll move to a time of communion just to give us some space to do that. Because, because it's easy for us to sort of say, okay, I get the point. But then to fill our mind with a bunch of other to-do lists and things that need to happen today for today to be a successful day, and you get it, you get it. So how do we create a few seconds where we can just breathe and remember that what Jesus is rescuing us from, what we celebrate in communion, broken body, shed blood, defeating the power of death, is God's desire to rescue us from that sea of self-righteousness, from that sea of sin, from that sea of shame, and, and to lead us to, to display in our life and the life around us the glory and mercy and compassion of God displayed in Jesus. There are four stations in this room, and uh, just invite you over the course of these next few minutes to see the freedom and beauty of the word repentance. It's been weaponized, it's been hijacked by, by people who have just screamed it with no sense of the story and the biography that it lands with. But, but to find the freedom that comes from aligning our heart and our mind and our hands and our, the stuff that's swimming around and we're swimming around, flailing in, to just, just to come back to, to come back to the place where we can find some relief from that spiral. Like Jonah, <laughs> it may get harder first. But what we remember in communion is that God is in the midst of it and amongst us. So may we remember, may we repent, may we experience the love and mercy and compassion of God in, our, in this time. Let's pray together. I invite you to communion. God, we take bread and cup because they, they foreshadow a greater greater love and a greater power and a greater mercy 
than one that we would write for ourselves or for others. But that meets us in a really difficult place at times. So we come to this place and just ask that you would meet us there. And that you would remind us of your grace and your mercy and compassion and your power for us and for others as we struggle to give you the pen of our story. In the name of Jesus we pray and remember.